morning, everybody. Happy sitting in a queue at Dover Day. And welcome to the News Agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the Mirror's Showbiz Editor Brackets Features, Jessica Bolton. Morning, Jess. Morning, Susie. Thank you for having me today. That's all right. Thank you for dialing in live from the radiator you're chained to in a basement. I'm not. I'm okay, everyone. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> She's saying that because there's a man behind the camera pointing a gun at her. <laughs> this is a paper review. So get into the comments. Ask us your questions. We will do our best to answer them for you. Uh, those of you listening later on podcast, you're just going to have to sit in your car and fume at the French. So what have we got today? Well, the Mirror has splashed on a parliamentary report which has found the NHS is having its worst staffing crisis in its 75-year history. Across the UK, there are more than 100,000 vacancies. And that's an estimate because many of them are unadvertised because the trusts can't afford to fill the posts. Mm. Consequently, they don't even know how many vacancies they've got for sure. Now, consultants are so burned out by the 14-hour or longer shifts and the real terms pay cuts, they're only able to work part-time of the work, part of the week. Uh, number 10 has and has had no credible strategy, this report's found, for dealing with it at any point for, oh, let's say the last decade or so. Um, now, Jess, I know this isn't your usual purview, but uh, we all use the NHS, and this is fairly devastating reading for just about anyone, mm. not a millionaire Tory donor, because we rely on it, don't we? Well, exactly. Um, I, it doesn't come as... It doesn't come as much of a surprise that there is a shortage of staff. Um, it, it's it's such damning numbers, though. Um, but, I mean, I've heard anecdotally of stories where, you know, positions have been open for years for doctors to be filled, um, you know, and people can't get anyone because uh, no one wants to do the job. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. So you hear of surgeries that are having to shut because they can't fill the posts. So there's literally jobs there to be filled, and it's been getting worse and worse obviously after covid as well i mean that's just absolutely compounded the problem um and yet we seem to be it seems to be coming as a surprise to the people that run the country when everybody else could kind of see this coming a mile off which is you know obviously frustrating and concerning uh, for us that you know rely on this service Exactly. Now, the nurse, possibly not the real name, the nurse says there won't be there wouldn't be a mass exodus if staff were treated better and compensated for their hard work. Um, and inside on page five, there's more detail about how these shortages are feeding into the fact there are 6.6 million people on the waiting list for treatment because there's not mm. enough people to treat them at the speed they need treating. The staff that do remain are getting even more burned out, so they're more likely to go sick, which causes more shortages. There are food banks being set up in hospitals. Every single department of the NHS is short of staff, every single part of it. Mm. Uh, and this report has found that's due to a lack of planning and a lack of appropriate funding in the right places at the right time. And it's been going on, like you said, Jess, we all know, for the yeah. past 12 years. They've cut and they've rearranged and they've cut and they've rearranged. And um, despite the fact that the population has been ageing and has been getting more obese and things like that, which does affect the kind of healthcare we need, they haven't put the money in when they needed to. If they had kept track with things we wouldn't be in this situation now perhaps now leslie says won't the lack of nhs staff also make it harder for private health care to gain staff or are they all flooding to work long hours at low pay in the private sector 
there is a bit of a switch from for some people to go to work privately out of the NHS, Leslie. And that's because uh, the pay is better, but the hours are better as well. And you can you can choose your time, you dip in and dip out. And so you don't have the burnout that you do elsewhere. And unfortunately, it's actually still being paid for by the taxpayers. Because in COVID, Rishi Sunak, uh, former chancellor of this parish, decided to pay private hospitals billions and billions and billions of pounds for taking on some of the NHS regular work, mm. you know, your knee operations, stuff like that. Um, and they did do it and they didn't do it brilliantly well they didn't bring down waiting lists very much but they did make billions of pounds and so the private system has been very well funded through covid and even before that they were starting to move that way with mm. some of the operations were being funded um to, if you go you know, to go private they were using private companies to do some of it to cut down some of the waiting lists and it's it just seems like it's been patchwork after patchwork of you know to try and somehow sort of sew a kind of broken system together rather than taking a long hard look at it and going why why are we struggling and in terms of staff i mean the key question there about better pay i mean how often do we hear about nurses and the pay rises and not having you know enough pay i mean it, it, when it comes down to it they it, the government seem to have found huge pockets of money lately i mean uh, let, let's just mention the 120 million that they managed to find for the Rwanda plan that seems to be hiring uh, a little bit you know but there's, there's you seem to find huge pockets of money and it was only a few years ago that the NHS was screaming out saying it needed 12 billion to fix itself uh, how many more I mean it's an incredible amount of money but how much more have we seen somehow come out the woodwork I mean how much money was spent on that wasted PPE that couldn't be used because it wasn't fit for purpose it, it seems like there was a reluctance to fund um Yet there could have been a way to try and sort some of these issues out a lot earlier um, through many of the previous people that have been in 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 chancellors or in in charge in this time. It seems like the last 12 years since 2010, it, they've just really neglected on every single level they possibly could have done to to get in there and actually. You know, <laughs> ironically for the NHS, you know, the, the prevention that they could have done, uh, they haven't. And we all know prevention is better than the cure, which we now Just can't ask, ask a doctor. Any one of them will tell you. Um, get into the comments, everybody. Have you had experience of the NHS recently? What's it been like? Um, I, what do you think the solutions might be? Mike says, have the two prospective next prime ministers said anything about the NHS crisis or, in fact, fixing any of the problems in the UK? All I've heard is tax cuts and being harder on refugees. In particular, Mike, Liz Truss has said that she will axe the 1.25% national insurance increase, which is all fine and dandy if you just want to vote for a tax cut. But that money was supposed to go for the first three years to the NHS to clear the backlogs and then to social care, which in, in its own turn then sort of knocks on to dealing better with the NHS because you have better social care, you have more people coming through the system quicker and everything else. Um, she hasn't suggested how else she's going to fund that. She hasn't said how where else that money's coming from, just tax cuts will lead to growth, and that's it. Um, it's difficult to know quite where how these sums work work out but she's not selling herself to the country Jess she's trying to sell herself to a group yeah. of 
old lunatic men. Uh, and so she can say this kind of thing and they vote for her or don't vote for her. But yeah. maternity services in particular, this report mm. says, are under unsustainable pressure, which means, mm. you know, people are just going to die because of yeah. this, because they haven't figured it out. Do you think, just was this all part of some big Tory nefarious Machiavellian plan to underfund the NHS for a decade and then say, oh, it's collapsed, we'll have to all go private? Or... You are they just idiots who can't be trusted to run anything? I think there's probably elements elements of both. I mean, you can't imagine that they sat down and went, do you know what, let's wreck the NHS, because they must know that that would always reflect badly on them anyway. But, I mean, we all know that they're, uh, you know, obviously the party's interested in the sort of uh, the big business and big pharma side of things. It, it, that is a root of sort of Tory kind of, cause and we know that um you know i mean david cameron is now an advisor for a firm that has is providing a load of new tech for the nhs um you know it's oh, what it, an amazing coincidence technology it, they probably need because he didn't fund it properly it, it, you know it, it, exactly i mean there's 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 business opportunities here and i think we probably know that they've all seen the business opportunities but i can't imagine that any single government would sit down and go like let's wreck it but i think it was slightly careless and slightly short-sighted to not think okay let's put the money into this and and just as an aside i mean we, we always say like we, we could be so proud of this health service. It's free and look at the country that we have and we have this health service. And, you know, look at, say, America, for instance, in the US, where they're, you know, they're paying these extraordinary fees, which is, you know, it's a massive warning sign to us of what it would be like if we didn't have this system. Yet at the same time, let's remember, we do all pay for the health service. We just pay for it in a different way. We pay through our taxes and our national insurance. But we pay less. So we, we pay less for treatment because it's socialised. Yes, we do, we do pay less. We do pay less. But let's not forget, we, we are sort of effectively stakeholders in it as well. We, we deserve to have a good service. They are not doing us a favour by giving us a free NHS. We, you know, this is something that belongs to the whole country. So when it is so abused like it has been and so underfunded, it... it it isn't, you know, it isn't something that we should have to put up with because, you know, we go, all oh, right, okay, it's the NHS, we have to do with it. No, we, you know, we, this should be doing the job it is. And unfortunately, yes, there are pressures because there's a growing number of the population has boomed. Obviously, there's more people living longer. There's a lot of pressures on it, but we just needed to get the right funding to it. And they can't tell me that there were some, some savings they could make elsewhere on the budgets to give a bit more money to probably the most important service that the country has. Well, for example, for example would, would be the fact that the, the pandemic PPE, which they had in boxes mm. in a warehouse ready mm. for a pandemic, um, had they just updated that when it got to the end of its usable lifespan right, and just mm. got into a warehouse full when they needed to, that would have been about a tenth of the cost that we actually mm. had to spend because we cut that cost. So we don't need that. Got rid of that. We didn't replace it, rather. We just let it rot in the warehouse. And then when the pandemic hit and the prices of PPE went through the roof, mm. we had to pay on the international markets and send planes all over the place trying to scrape up whatever we could. Yeah. And have we just planned and spent appropriately and wisely over the years, then when the big crisis hit, 
we'd have been in such a better position. Now, Annalise, uh, sorry, can we just have Annalise comment back? The NHS has always had a staffing crisis. The Tories have been trying to squeeze the life out of it for some time now. Now it seems the chickens are coming home to roost. And Annalise's previous comment there was that there are um, people who were being, she worked in the NHS and there were people, they were, the staff had been debanded. So they were effectively getting paid less for doing just the same. The work overload was hideous and morale was drastically low, but we plodded on regardless. Everyone has a limit. I reach mine. Uh, it, thank you for the work you did do, Annalie. Um, I want to just point out that although when you have stories like this, people do say, the NHS is a disaster, everything's... Oh, it's, it's, people, not the NHS, it's the funding for the NHS. Is the people who are, who are able to carry on, and who are still doing their work in that are doing the most amazing job every single day despite these problems. I had a six-year-old with a suspected appendicitis a week or so ago. She had a pain in the right side, burning fever. The fever went overnight. I thought, well, it's probably just a gut ache, but I better take it to the GP just to be sure. Right? The GP felt it over. She's still hurting her tummy and thought, you better go to hospital, get it checked out. Had a referral straight away, pack a bag, off we go to hospital. Over the course of two days, she had two blood tests, sonograms. She saw seven different doctors, surgeons, consultants, pediatricians, junior doctors. All of them, and I've got to say it, all of them absolutely amazing, treated her with enormous respect and spoke to her as an equal when she's six, right? But every single one of them was late, every single one. And when, because we were, I'm sure she wasn't an emergency, okay, so we weren't at the top of the list to be seen. But when you've been there a couple of hours and you, you're in a waiting room, you go and see the nurse in the nurse's station and say, well, do you know when we're going to be seeing the, the surgeon? And she would say, well, look, he's got to cover the whole hospital. Yeah. The I mean, whole hospital. So he's, he's dealing with the car wreck. He's putting people back together. He's doing the word round, word rounds of the last car wreck and the fire and the whatever else, and the person who fell in the chopper. And then when he's all washed up and gone everything else, he's going to come down and do the do the ward rounds and come and have a look at your little girl. But she's actually on the list. And that's fair enough. They've yes. got to do that. But every single one, they were the only one on duty in the hospital. And, that's not, and that yeah. was when we got seen quickly. That was when we were a potential emergency. And that was, you know, they still gave us immense focus. But if if she'd genuinely had appendicitis, she'd have been straight in and on the slab and sorted out without any bother. I don't have any concern about that at all. But um, the fact they were still there and still doing that, and we've got this kind of crap going on, I found absolutely amazing. And everyone who's out there still doing it, thank you very much, because it does make a big difference. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it must be, it's, it's a job that, Obviously, I have great respect for people that do this, especially like nurses, supporters, everybody that works in every section of the healthcare and also like social care as well. Um, it, it, it's such, I mean, it's an amazingly hard job to do. And I think that's, I mean, all sort of people outside would, would would say that and would say, look, we have respect for you. We, we think this is amazing what you're doing. It just seems so sad that that can't be reflected in in the decent pay rises that they've just been asking for. Why? I mean, the nurses, yeah. again, are facing it again this time round. I mean, why are we keep having this same conversation? Why are we not paying the people that do a crucial service enough money? Where would we be if somebody didn't want to train as nurses? I'll tell you exactly where I'd be. I'd be in a hole in the ground along mm -hmm. with my daughter. We'd have died in childbirth um, without the NHS. 
and so many other people exactly the same just wouldn't, wouldn't be here yeah that's the up and down of it really um now this is a report i should say that's come from the commons health and social care select committee chaired by one jeremy hunt a two-time tory leadership contender and former health secretary on whose watch you idiot on whose watch a lot of this disaster unfolded i can remember junior doctors going on strike and it only happened once in my lifetime um because he was mucking around with their contracts. But what have any of us heard, Jess, from the two remaining contenders, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, as Mike said earlier? They haven't said very much, but Rishi's mentioned the NHS, but none of them have said where the funding and the planning has come from. And we've yeah. clearly lacked grown-ups in charge of the NHS for a while. Yeah. Um, but there is a leadership debate live on the BBC tonight at nine o'clock with a studio audience, so maybe some of them will actually ask the important questions hope hopefully and hopefully seeing as uh, i mean is our splash today hopefully that'll be fresh in people's minds to ask about some of this because i mean so far we've had uh rishi who's said that he's going to cut bureaucracy and waste um in the nhs uh to help cut the sort of backlog um and he said that okay. after okay. 18 if anyone's been waiting for more than 18 weeks then they will be contacted by their trust in 100 days. Now, that's the kind of sort of pledge that you think, hmm, you contacted, you'll get a phone call, hey, you're still waiting. Doesn't mean you're going to get any treatment still. I mean, maybe maybe it's different, but that's the kind of sort of political speak that you become sort of aware of with the when they're sort of talking about sort of NHS targets, et cetera. Yeah. I know last year we did a big campaign on the mental health crisis caused by the pandemic. And... Uh, a part of that was looking at the number of staff in the NHS who themselves were now having mental health struggles because of what had happened, obviously not just because of what happened, but accelerated because of COVID and the pandemic and that situation. And still, all those people there are saying they've got no support. Many, Most of them are fearful about actually saying, you know, what, that, that they have a problem. It's just a complete time bomb waiting here and to say about cutting bureaucracy and waste it, it's not necessary i mean i'm sure i'm sure every company which effectively the nhs is like a company every company has areas of waste but that's not the key point here and i don't think rishi's got the key point if that's what he's come out with why is he not addressing these other issues the nhs has to have a bureaucracy that's how hmm. you PPE. That's how you get the sheets washed. That's how you have mm. someone who's not a frontline medic, but is cleaning the wards, all right, and is therefore saving just as many lives as a consultant surgeon. Oh, is. Yeah. Not, um, and my mother worked as a receptionist in the NHS for years, and before that, she worked in medical records keeping. It's the bureaucrats that keep it going over. You have to have the bureaucracy, otherwise, all you've got is a collection of panicking doctors. Right. You have to have somebody who's ordering the medicine and the bandages. You have to work out how many beds there are and where they're clearing from. You have to have people who are not the frontline medics in order to run the NHS. You clear out the bureaucrats and then you don't have an NHS anymore. You just have a hospital where people turn up and hope for the best. And that's not quite the same thing at all. Um, but let's hope that there's something on the leadership debate later on. But so trust has been... <laughs> rather quiet on the matter entirely like you say she's not explained how she's going to make up for that shortfall from the tax cut she wants to do to national insurance um, so she gets some proper scrutiny then now mm. speaking of criminal negligence and gross abandonment of state responsibilities to page 15 in the paper where trumpets please i've got a story in today 
and this is my show so we get to talk about it. Now, regular viewers and listeners will know that I write about the campaign for recognition of Britain's nuclear test veterans. And in the 20 years that I've been covering it, this might be one of the more shocking episodes I've reported on. Now, this is a story about Brian Tomlinson, who in 1957, as a young sapper, aged just 20, he was ordered to march through the bomb crater left by Operation Antler in South Australia in the, in the outback to see how radioactive he became. That's it. That was his task. Now, usually at the test, he was there for three tests. And the first two, his job was to drill and explode uh, down into the bedrock where there had been tests previously, all right, um, through contaminated soil to bury instruments for the scientists to measure subsequent tests. When he did this, he wore nothing but shirts and boots. And then he had to collect them again after the tests. And he was always accompanied by scientists who were wearing full protective clothing, whereas his troop were not. His dose was never recorded during those episodes and he was never decontaminated at any point. But for the third test, which was codenamed Taranaki, and it was the biggest one, it was 25 kilotons, so the same size as the bomb which levelled Nagasaki after the end of the Second World War. For that one, Brian there was given white rubber wellies, a cotton overall and a dose meter. And he was ordered to march through the crater a few hours after the blast as the mushroom clouds still hung overhead until his meter showed a certain point of radiation. He had no other job to perform. There was no reason for him to do it apart from to see how radioactive he got. He was then decontaminated and it took three showers for him to be rid of all the fallout under his nails and in his hair. Um, and it's quite amazing if you read the story there about his eyewitness account. He says when you turned up to the bomb craters, it was amazing. He said it looked like a bowling green. It was all smooth and beautiful. And it was only when you stood on it and it cracked under your feet that you realised it was the glass had melted in the heat. The sand rather had melted in the heat and formed a crust of green glass in the desert outback. And that was what you were walking on. Um, he went on to suffer a duodenal ulcer in the gut, which is very common among the test veterans because your gut gets very stimulated by radiation. And he also had 20 years of ulcers and blisters on the palms of his hands, which erupted, exploded, bled, went hard, erupted, exploded, bled, went hard for 20 years. Doctors couldn't diagnose it, but it does sound perhaps if there's any cancer patients out there, sounds very similar to radiodermatitis, which is a condition you get when exposed to beta radiation, uh, which is usually used in radiotherapy. Um, now, Jess, again, this isn't quite your neck of the woods. It's more mine than yours. But as a journalist, I would like your opinion of this statement, which was given to us by the MOD when we went to them with the story. And you've had lots of times that you've gone to a PR and said, so and so. And you read it out to them and then they give you something which is like, what? So listen to this. We are grateful to all service personnel who participated in the British nuclear testing programme and contributed to keeping our nation secure. The protection, health and welfare of those involved was a vital consideration, as documented by the detailed safety measures and radiobiological monitoring that took place during the operations. The Prime Minister, there he is, met with several nuclear test veterans recently and has asked ministers to explore how their dedication can be recognised. We remain committed to considering any new evidence. Please don't rush your considerations. It's only been 50 years. Um, this guy. Five years ago, that happened to him. It's just, I mean, it, it seemed like progress was being made um, when, as you say, uh, Boris Johnson became the first to actually meet with the veterans, which is, which is shocking in itself. Um, 
and then and then obviously that's now been i mean oh you you all know this better than me but how much doubt has that now been thrown into with the leadership (laughs) right over whether something more will happen um the crux of this i mean i i I believe i mean most most of them are asking they want a medal just to be recognized for their service some want a medal some don't want a medal some want compensation or war pensions whatever they all want some acknowledgement or some form of recognition um which is why meeting the prime minister was important whatever we got out of it really because it was a it was a step in that direction Mm. Um, but brian here he says look i do want a medal because it would it would show that we have been recognized when we've been discarded Mm. mistreated for so long and you know if there's any viewers out there who knew about the nuclear test before this if you didn't if you've heard about this kind of thing before i'd be amazed because apart from me no one else is reporting on it particularly Mm. that's what i don't i don't understand this because i I mean i've seen or followed your stories on this but i mean it it just seems it seems it seems to beg his belief beg a belief that uh you're asking people to do this and in return we can't give them a simple acknowledgement is there nothing that they could do i mean ask you know the people that you know why can't we give them a medal why why what is the reason is that they're they have not demonstrated enough risk or rigor to their service I think that's the ultimate insult, isn't it? When you're in there, hadn't walked through the crater. And he may be only one of half a dozen who actually did that on this particular example. But he was still, his tent there behind him, you see in the picture when he was 20 years old. They were living Mm. under canvas nine miles from ground zero in the outback. Right. Uh, The security measures were one wooden pole that came down across the road. That was it. Okay. There were winds. There was yeah. contamination, there was dust, there was atmosphere, there was weather, there was people driving in and out. There were trucks going in, carrying Brian and his troop to go and blast out the concrete, blast out the bedrock, and then driving them back again, all right? Everything was contaminated. Mm. And the, the palms of his hand that he had this terrible dermatitis-type thing on, mm. they were the, it was the hands that he had with no gloves, was pulling instruments out of the soil after the blasts. And the reason those instruments had been buried in the soil was because they were in the direct in the blast zone. And the first two tests, they were only 100 feet up, so they were very close to the ground, and there was a lot of fallout. The last one, the one that he walked through, that was from a barrage balloon. It was about 1,000 feet up. It was supposed to minimise the fallout. But because it was such a bigger bomb, Mm. obviously the heat there affected the soil underneath, uh, there is a very high chance that some of the sand would have been sucked up into that fireball and then fallen back again as fallout. So you know, it, it just it just seems like I mean at the at the time you can understand that maybe they didn't understand the full effects of what they were. Oh, after. they knew. But, oh, they I mean, knew. Or seeing as you say, the scientists seem to have you know, but surely this many years on, something could have been done to recognise these people's contribution, and it, it it's just it it is is shameful really that these people are out there telling their stories and nothing has yet been done. Even if it is just an acknowledgement of what a fantastic effort, you know, just something. So at least they feel like it was worth something and they have been heard. Exactly. That would be nice, wouldn't it? We have sent uh, today's story to Boris Johnson. 
Uh, his what? office has seen it. And we've also sent it uh, to Liz Truss's team. Um, we have some support from Rishi Sunak for our campaign already. We are waiting for the same from Liz, hopefully in the next day or two when they get round to going through all their media requests. We'll hear back from her as to whether or not she too would support it. But with the problem we've got at the moment uh, for any test veterans who are watching really is that the last prime minister wanted to do something, but the fact he's now a caretaker means that the civil service who are preparing packages and options have to kind of go into a holding pattern until you get a new prime minister and you know kind of what you're doing. Um, there is an argument for saying it should still be pushed through because it's not a, a party political issue. Mm-hmm. It's got cross party support. But in the meantime, if we can get support from Rishi and Liz, that really does help clear the civil service blockage a bit and pushes things through so that's what we're trying to do to lose the momentum now you finally got that you know now you finally met you know primers there etc it'd be such a shame if they let them down again Mm. hopefully fingers crossed for people like brian uh, and all the other veterans and their families that are still there we're gonna keep pushing uh mirror's been pushing for 40 years we're not going to stop now so uh but we do have some other things going on. Now, if you have any questions, if you use the NHS, have you, are you a nuclear test veteran? Uh, what do you think about Brian's story? Have you got problems with the NHS? Do you think there should be some changes to funding? Get into the comments, let us know. We'll wrap up at the end. But first, uh, there is some good news in the world. You'll like this one. It's quite funny. Uh, here it is. Now, Most parents, when their children head off to university, breathe a sigh of relief, crack open the gin and wait for the laundry to arrive. Now, not Gail Ennis, bless her, who, while taking her son Ben around the Edge Hill University campus, was so taken with the place that she decided to sign up. Now, he wasn't too impressed at first. But yesterday, they both graduated after three years. Ben, aged 24, the 2-1 in ecology, and Gail, aged 48, with a first in criminology. Now, Jess, she even did better than him academically. Proof, do you think that you're never too old to embarrass your children? Oh, no, I mean, it's a great story. I mean, I hopefully, hopefully he came around quite quickly, you'd hope to think. But, um, I mean, the quote is quite telling. It was was something like, uh, uh, when I first told him, he wasn't too happy about it. But then he was fine. Not great. Fine. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, to be honest, to be honest, uh, it was fantastic that Gail went back and did it, and she obviously did fantastically. She did criminology. She got first. She beat her son. Um, but I mean, at the same time, can you imagine being him in like Freshers Week or seeing her around the union? Can you imagine on the cheese nuts? Mom floats in, going. <laughs> Which is like, I mean, the cruelest of us would be. I'm sure it wasn't anything like that. I'm sure she, you know, gave him his space, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it, it does make you laugh. But what I do like the fact that she actually beat him in the scores. So yeah. well done to Gail. What fantastic news! And they seem, you know, perfectly happy in their pictures now. I'm sure they actually had fun there together. His smile looks slightly less broad than hers. He's been like. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but when he's a bit older maybe if not now he will be super chuffed and proud of her exactly i'm sure he i'm sure he is already proud of her really um but you know it's just uh, you probably just you know see the funny side of it all uh you know there's many different universities you could have gone to a different one but anyway <laughs> and that one and obviously you know maybe it was nearest to home and all the rest most convenient and 
if your son's there, you've only got to, you know, it's easier. And isn't it? she's grateful because I'm sure she probably did his washing even earlier for him because she was there on campus. Yeah, he could just hand her his socks at, in the Union Park. No, congratulations. Yeah. Well, well done, girl, and uh, well done for putting up with it, Ben. Uh, you've both done marvellously, I think. Um, right, I don't think there's any questions for us to wrap on. So, thank you very much, everyone, for taking part. Thank you, Jess, for coming along and and not talking about neighbours or Anne and Dick or something for a change. <laughs> you did very well. Um, last week, in neighbours, everybody. <laughs> it's so sad. Parliamentary teams recruiting. So, I mean, get in there. You plainly have. You might might be able to get somewhere in there. Um, if you're listening later on podcast, please leave us a review so other people can find us. And we will see you again. What does it say? Monday. We'll see you again on Wednesday for another edition of the News Agenda then. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>